We are in chapter 8 looking at Philip talking to this Ethiopian treasurer who has been where? And he's on his way back home. He's not too far toward back home yet. He's on the road that goes from where to where. Yes. So he's just starting on his journey back home, and Philip is told by the Lord, through an angel, to go to that road, and then encouraged to join himself to the chariot. Now, what has this Ethiopian man been doing while he's been riding along in the chariot? Reading Isaiah. Reading Isaiah 53, um, which would have been a trick in a chariot with a scroll. Uh, but shows that he is uh, interested. And <laughs> Philip asks him a question. What does he ask him? Do you understand what you're reading? You know, reading and understanding are not the same thing. You can read something and not understand it. And the Ethiopian man recognizes his limitations in that. He's humble enough to say, you know, I need somebody to help me. And he invites Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot and, and, and speak to him. And so, you know, Philip does what? Well, maybe I should say this. He gives the passage. What does the eunuch ask Philip? Now, what does that tell you about the eunuch, that he would ask Philip that question? He's thinking. Absolutely. He is thinking about what he's reading. He's, you know, trying to understand it. That's an obvious question, that passage. He talks about the servant of the Lord. Who is it? I mean, people who don't believe that, you know, the New Testament's inspired still ask that question. You know, kind of like, well, who is that? And they come up with all kinds of answers. Well, you can imagine, before that he had anybody to explain it, he didn't really know. And it, was it was it Isaiah himself? Was it someone else? Well, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now that's a kind of ironic, because the passage he was reading in Isaiah was talking about what about Jesus? His death. Yes, and what things about his death? This is ironic. Yes, he didn't open his mouth. He was like a sheep led to the slaughter. Next thing you know, Philip opened his mouth and preached Jesus to him. So that's, uh, there's, I think, a deliberate contrast there. And Philip, when he opened his mouth, he did exactly the thing we ought to do when we're teaching somebody. He starts where the guy is, and he leads him to where he wants him to go great passage to begin with anyway you know and so he starts right there and he preaches Jesus to him and as they're going along this Ethiopian man says what look water what prevents me from being baptized yeah here's some water why can't I be baptized well now wait a minute what would make this Ethiopian man think about baptism? <clears throat> Is that in Isaiah 53? It must be in the Jesus part. It must be. 
I think it's interesting that when Philip preaches Jesus, the Ethiopian wants to know why he can't be baptized. So evidently, you know, that was a part of this. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Alyssa. Come in. Welcome. Where am I sitting? Right on the floor. Okay. Should I take my shoes off? Yeah. Whatever you feel comfortable. All right. We're in Acts 8. I'll show you where. And uh, so, you know, immediately, you know, this Ethiopian man, when Jesus was preached to him, wants to be baptized. So that's a part of preaching Jesus. Why would it be a part of preaching Jesus? Exactly. That's one of the essential steps to be united with Jesus. It's also something Jesus taught about. If you're going to if you're going to preach Jesus, aren't you going to have to preach the things Jesus said and taught and that sort of thing? And so obviously Philip had done a good job, and it's interesting that the Ethiopian man is so so eager. You know, sometimes we kind of have to twist people's arms to do what the Lord tells him to do. Not this guy. This guy is twisting Philip's arm. There's the water. Why can't I be baptized? And, uh, well, what's what's Philip's answer? So you can. Yes. Now there's a textual question about verse 37. It may not be in the original text, but clearly Philip allows him to do so based upon his faith. Really, the only reason you couldn't be baptized if, is if there wasn't any water. But there was water there. He's a believer. Then, you know, that's exactly what, what he does. And so in verse 38, the, the man, uh, the Ethiopian, orders the chariot to stop. And both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him, and then they came up out of the water. Now, that's an, you know, interesting thing. Would you both go down to the water and both come up out of the water if baptism were like sprinkling or something like that, like some people teach? You know, the same thing that would keep sprinkling preachers today out of the water would have kept Philip and the eunuch out of the water. You don't need to get into it. Just get a little bit of it in a cup or in your hand or whatever and sprinkle it. But they, he actually baptized him. He immersed him. And uh, they come up out of the water. The Spirit takes... You know, the takes Philip away, and the eunuch goes on his way with what kind of attitude? Joy. With joy. Do you remember anybody who left Jesus with just the opposite attitude? The rich young young ruler left Jesus how? He was sorrowful because he had many possessions. Yes. Whether you have obeyed what Jesus says or not is going to determine whether you go on your way joyful or grieved. This man did what the Lord said for him to do. Now he's in Christ. He's joyful. And as we pointed out last week, if he continued his reading in Isaiah, in chapter 56, he will come to where God's going to have this time through Christ when he will accept eunuchs and foreigners and things like that. So his being a eunuch his being from Ethiopia, even if he was a proselyte or a Jew living in Ethiopia, none of those things were barriers to him being accepted by Jesus. You know, there's no physical, you don't have to have some 
you know, absence of physical handicaps to be accepted by, by the Lord. And Philip goes on to Azotus in the Old Testament that was known as Ashdod. And then he, he preaches until he comes to Caesarea. And that is the end of this account of Philip. But if you'll make a mental note, we leave Philip where? The next time we read about Philip, guess where we're going to find him? Caesarea. Good guess. Although it's going to be 13 chapters from now. So evidently he stayed for a while in Caesarea. Alright, comments or questions you want to uh, offer on chapter 8? I just wondering, verse 36. It, I was, it just occurred to me that I wonder if the eunuch was asking, are there any other barriers that, I mean, because because he couldn't participate fully in the, the temple worship. Absolutely. He might have had the question on his mind. Okay, you've told me this, this sounds really great, but is there something else that, you know, you haven't said yet? And, and Yes, I, I thought that also. I think the fact that he would have had limitations on what he could have done in Judaism might have made him think, do you suppose that I won't be allowed to be baptized like he knew Jesus had taught? Uh, and he finds out, no, anybody can do that if they're willing to believe. Good, good comment. Other questions and comments? So, Philip had been chosen with these seven to be these servants there in the church in Jerusalem. So, but then he goes to Caesarea for quite a bit of time. And it kind of strikes me as odd that he would be appointed to that office and then he would leave town. I don't think so. Why did he leave town? God said so. All the other people did too. Yeah, the persecution scattered everybody. There's not going to be any more work uh, feeding the the widows, at least not much, because my impression is pretty much all the brethren except the apostles left Jerusalem. So I think his job's over when they all flee. Good, good question. Other comments? If you were preaching this sermon, how would you get from... Isaiah 53 to Jesus? I mean, to this point? Well, I mean, obviously in Isaiah 53, you can see what it says about Jesus, particularly his atoning sacrifice, his giving his life to heal us and for our sins and so forth. And then you can talk about the things Jesus says that we need to do to receive the atonement that he provides. And, and that, to me, that would be a very logical step. So that's probably the way I'd do it. Kind of a, well, to answer your question, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about somebody else. And, and tell him and, about and, the somebody else that he's told. Okay. Yeah. I've always wondered what that sermon was. Yeah, it would be that cool question. to hear it. Yes. Yeah. But I'm assuming that it's somewhat similar to other sermons of the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. Starting from a different passage, but still preaching the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I wonder how differently he would have gotten from A to B if he was like reading Leviticus or something. <laughs> it's, this is a pretty good passage to read, to segue into Jesus' life. Well, you know, do you suppose the Lord had anything uh, to do with the uh, timing and, uh, you know, sequence of that? But the truth of the matter is, 
in uh, in Luke 24, uh, you've got a couple of interesting passages. Uh, Luke 24, 27. Then, this is Jesus after his resurrection talking to these two people on the road to Emmaus. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. There's a sense in which every passage is about Jesus. And I think you could have started with all kinds of Old Testament passages, including plenty of them in Leviticus that have led you straight to Jesus as well. Uh, I think that's what you see in the New Testament. There's all kinds of passages that remind them of Jesus. It's kind of interesting. Um, Mom and Joy are studying like an overview, which I haven't seen the material, so I don't know for sure, but it, stu- it sort of traces how all of this fits together. And that's kind of another way to look at it. Cool. Is that what you're doing? Do you even know? Are you awake? Hello? I'm awake. Okay. <laughs> Just checking. Very good. Other comments? Alright. As we move to chapter 9, we have an event of great importance. In fact, we have two stories, one in chapter 9 and one in chapter 10, that are clearly very key stories for the book of Acts. And one reason you know that is, Luke is a concise writer, but he tells the story of chapter 9 two more times, total of three times. He tells the story of chapter 10 two more times. So both of these stories are told in three different passages in Acts. That means these are very key, significant stories. It is also interesting that these, there are three events in succession where a believer is sent to an unexpected person that ends in that person being converted. You know, the angel tells Philip to go to the Ethiopian man and he's converted. Now, the Lord, uh, the, the Spirit, will, will tell um, Ananias to go to this big persecutor of the Christians, Saul, and he's converted. And then Peter will be told by the Lord to go to a Roman army officer, and he was converted. So in, in three chapters, the church will now include an Ethiopian eunuch, its bitterest enemy, Saul, and a Roman centurion, Cornelius. There's a lot going on here. A lot of changes are starting to take place. Um, One more thing I'd say before we get into the chapter. There are some features of this chapter that are really a model for how to call an apostle. They're not, not every detail is a model for just conversion for Christians in general. God did have a special role for Saul. So some details here are special to his role yeah, as God called him. All right, anything you want to say before we start into chapter 9? Uh, all right, 1 to 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the <coughs> disciples of the Lord, 
went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them down to Jerusalem. As he was traveled, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hands, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So, we've got Saul. We last uh, saw him in the beginning of chapter 8. In 1 through 3, he was responsible for this terrible persecution. He was ravaging the church in 8.3, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He was putting them in prison. Now we see him in 9.1 still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, what does that remind you of? A dragon. Yeah, it does. <laughs> he seems like this ferocious monster, this wild beast on the rampage that's panting and snorting against the Christians and going everywhere he can to stomp them out. I mean, this is that's pretty powerful. And he's gone to the high priest to find letters from him to go all the way up to Damascus, see if he can find any Christians up there and bind him and bring him back to Jerusalem. I mean, he's willing to go to the extreme to try to exterminate Christianity. He's, he's got a, you know, a mission. You know, he's almost obsessed with doing everything he can to get the Christian movement stopped. That's who we're dealing with in this chapter. Likely candidate for conversion? <laughs> I don't think he's the guy that if you had lived back then you would have thought would be the next guy to obey the gospel and I don't think we think people like that today are but look what happens he's on his way up to Damascus he's got some people with him and suddenly what happens there's a bright light yes there's this light and it's flashing around him and uh Wow. Uh, he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That probably comes as quite a shock. Kind of a thunderbolt. For the first time it dawns on Saul, he is completely wrong. Can you imagine the shock to his system? What does he ask? Who are you, Lord? And what does the voice say? Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Whoa. Wow. Uh-oh. <laughs> Man, when you find out that the guy you're trying to discredit and trying to turn everybody away from is actually the Lord... Oh man, man, that would be quite, quite disconcerting. 
And um, what do you think about Jesus saying that I am Jesus whom you are persecuting? Where was Jesus? How could Saul have been persecuting Jesus? Yes, it is interesting to me that when Saul's hits, when Saul hits the church, Jesus feels the blow. <laughs> but think about it: what are we to Jesus? We're his body. How do you feel about your body? Well, what happens if I do that? <laughs> and if I did it really hard and often? Eventually, though Josh is tough, he probably would decide to be annoyed by that. And what if he said, Gary, why are you hitting me? And I said, oh, Josh, I'm not hitting you. I'm just hitting your body. Anybody going to take that excuse? You know, we kind of are attached to our bodies. Somebody, if somebody messes with our body, we assume they're messing with us, Right? You know, that'd be a, try, try that, you know, with some, uh, you know, mean, ornery rascal, and you'll see how well that works. So, when we are, as Christians, Jesus' body, if somebody does something to Christians, they're doing it to Jesus. He says, you're persecuting me. Wow. And then the voice says... In verse 6, get up and enter the city. They will be told you what you must do. Further instructions will not be given on the road. Further instructions when you get into the city of Damascus. Comments and thoughts through verse 6. Verse 6 is really kind of interesting, I think. Um, Saul gets, you know, this slap in the face. Oh, look, I'm trying to, I'm persecuting God. And his response, in all likelihood, would have been, oh boy, I'm in for it now. Um, and he gets this, this glimmer of hope of, of something. I mean, he's not told what's wrong and then struck down immediately, he says, he's told to get up and enter the city, and, you know, you'll be told what to do. And it's just, it's just kind of an interesting act of, of mercy or holding out of, of hope of some kind, and any little sliver I think he would have grasped onto. Well, it is amazing, why does the Lord care to tell a man like Saul, what to do? And you remember, two or three weeks ago we said, we will see the answer to a prayer back in uh, 760, where Stephen cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In a way, this is answering that prayer. God is about to show mercy on one of the ones that we're responsible for the stoning of Stephen. That's an interesting thing. Can we see this 
or should we see this as where Paul gets the authority to be an apostle of having seen Jesus? Definitely. And both times when Paul retells this, Saul Paul, when he retells this, he specifically mentions that his seeing and hearing the Lord qualified him to be a witness, which is a special work of an apostle. So I think that's exactly right. I, if, if the Lord had never appeared to Saul, could he have been an apostle? Because what, what was the job of an apostle? To be a witness of the resurrection. If you hadn't seen the Lord after he was raised, how are you going to be a witness? You might say, I heard about it. <laughs> but a witness means you saw it. So, I think this was very much a part of the mission God has for him. Other thoughts through six? You think it's okay to, uh, like sometimes when I have people that come to me and I mean, I'll talk to people who aren't Christians, you know, and they're and I'm, they're wanting to get their life on track, you know, and I'm trying to tell them about Jesus and stuff, and they're like, well, I've just done too many bad things, you know, and they, I mean, you know, I'm sure you've heard that where people say, the Lord won't take me, you know, because I've done so many bad things, and, and I use Paul as an example to show that he was killing Christians, and God chose him to, you know, to work for him, and uh, I said, if, I said, if, if so, God's going to be killing his people, I mean, if he chooses them, I, I would think, you know, that God's going to, you know, and I, I try to explain that all sins are equal and stuff. And I mean, is it okay to use that as an example? Or Paul, Paul himself does. First okay. Timothy one fifteen. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost. Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. That's 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. He talks about his life before that, 13 and 14. Okay. So that's exactly what Paul is saying. One of the reasons that Jesus did this yeah. was to serve as an example so that nobody would think they are too bad to be uh -huh. saved by the blood of Christ. So I think that's exactly the example he used. Okay, right on. Cool. Thanks. So in verse 7, the man who traveled, they hear, but they don't see. When you put all the accounts together, it looks to me like that the men who were with him realized something was happening. You know, they, they, they heard something, but they didn't understand the voice. They actually saw a light, but they didn't see the Lord. They, they witnessed some strange phenomena, but the, the revelation of Jesus was not to them. So they have enough that they understood something really happened. But they aren't the ones who actually saw and heard Jesus, you know, intelligibly. And so Saul gets up from the ground. Of course, when he gets up, things are a little different for him. Not only has he been stunned, but what else has he been? By the light. At least I've heard a song along that line, but uh, he really was. The light blinded him, couldn't see anything. So does he go into Damascus? Yeah, but not quite the way he had in mind before. You know, uh, the, the Lord has kind of trumped what he had in mind and the way he comes into Damascus. In fact, what do they have to do with him? 
What would that remind you of? Who would you lead by a hand usually? Child. Yeah, a little child. You know, this is humbled Saul. He's become like a little child. It's interesting, and in one of the later accounts, he'll say he was called to be a light to the nations and to open the eyes of the blind. <laughs> but he's blinded by the light to begin with. He's got to be broken. He's got to see he's helpless. He's got to see his need. And so, and besides that, what would his blindness prove? His faith? Yeah. Yeah, it really happened. You know, can you imagine seeing something like that and then scratching your head and saying, did I just dream that? <laughs> you know, I mean, wow. Well, he's blind, you know, so it really happened. Um, now, I think it's interesting. He goes up to Damascus. Do you know what that means? The gospel's been spreading more than we even realized. There's Christians all the way up there, and we'll see in the next section. One of them is going to be assigned to go to him and help him. Uh, and so he's way away from home, and now humbled and going up there to receive further instructions as to what he needs to do. Comments and questions through verse 9. Just noting that it was three days um, that he was without sight without food, without water, which reminds us of other three-day events, like Jesus being in a tomb, Jonah being in a fish. Oh. Yeah, exactly. I bet those were a long three days. But he does a lot of thinking on those three days. Yeah, can't you imagine? I, I, it's, just, it's just hard to put yourself in his place. And think what a shock this is. I mean, like, to find out suddenly this thing you have been obsessed with, you were totally wrong. Wow. All the little clues you'd seen all along, suddenly. It's kind of like being at your own surprise birthday party. And it's like, <laughs> that's why that happened. That's what was going on there. And that <laughs> Yeah, don't you imagine he started rethinking. wonder if he thought anything about Stephen's speech and some of the things that Stephen said. Uh, and just on and on, you can think about contacts he's had with Christians in Christ and things that now he sees in a different light, even though he sees nothing. And if it were me, I mean, here I am in this room for three days. I mean... Obviously, it was a choice not to eat and drink when he did it on his own. Um, you know, I, for me, it would be, it'd be more destructive, not just because I recognized I was wrong, but I think to recognize that this is something that Paul just didn't do as a, as a side job or a habit. He did this because he truly loved the Lord and thought he was doing it right. Um, you know, I mean, he had spent all his life studying the Scripture and studying what he needed to do to, what, I mean, what he felt like he needed to do to do what the Lord was saying. And so this isn't just being told you're wrong, this is your whole faith, everything you've lived for for all your life destroyed. Um, so you're starting over from scratch by the Lord just telling you himself, you're wrong. Uh, I mean, I, I, if it were me, I'd be doing a lot of praying and saying, Lord, I've tried so hard to serve you. Show me what, what the truth really is. And Paul left his honor that takes it. Amen. Other thoughts? You said that the other men didn't see Jesus, and you said that he Saul saw Jesus, but where does it say that he saw Jesus? 
It will say that in later accounts in chapter 22 and 26. I am importing a little bit of that information. But he will he will tell more about what happened in chapters 22 and 26. So, do you not think that the men understood what was being said? Because it says that they heard the voice but didn't see anyone. I think they so, do. So, do you not think that they actually heard Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Yes, in, in 22.9. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Heard the voice, did understand the word? Yes. Um, and let's see. Um, look at 22.14, Cameron. The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. And then in chapter 26, um, let's see. I guess you uh, you may not have any statement about what they saw. I was looking to see. I don't think you do. So anyhow, that, when you put all that together, that's, that, I think that's the best explanation. Gary, did you say... In did you say that in New American Standard in verse nine, uh, 22, verse 9, it says that they did hear him, but didn't understand, or they didn't hear him at all? Uh, let's see, 22.9 says, yeah. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Okay. Mine is, like, straight says they did not hear the voice. Yes. So, I mean... Yes. The, you've, got, you've got that ambiguity of the term here. In, in 9.7, it says they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Okay. But when we say, well, okay. have you ever just told somebody, I, I couldn't hear you? Oh, but you really, can't, you just couldn't understand. <laughs> Why would you tell somebody, I couldn't hear you? <laughs> yeah, but what if you weren't <laughs> even in the same room? You know, I'll tell Sandra sometimes, I couldn't hear you. She's in the other room. Well, yeah, I must have heard her. <laughs> you don't just randomly tell somebody, I can't hear you. But we use here in that double sense. Sometimes here just yeah. means to know something. Right. There's a sound. Sometimes here means to understand. There is a possibility the, the construction in the original language is slightly different. Some people think that one of the instructions means more to understand, the other means more to hear the, the voice. That's a real debated issue. I wouldn't put a lot of weight in that. Yeah. If you read some commentaries, they will. You don't need to go there. That may be the case. There's still, there's still some reason to think that that's a possibility. But either way, the word here has two meanings. Right, right. I understand that. Okay. Okay. So. Thank you. You're welcome. You can see this process in Saul that James talks about um, uh, about be be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. You have to empty yourself of any sort of good thing that you think you have, so God can fill them up with His good things. Amen. So Saul had to be brought down to rock bottom and show him that all these good things that he's been doing were for naught. Exactly. We don't have any more details about the people that were with him, so we don't know whether they were traveling with him for the same purpose, or if he just joined a caravan, or... 
you know, it appears that he's by himself then afterwards, so if they were with him, they left him. Well, of course, he was led by the hand, so I'm assuming maybe right. one of these guys afterward, led by the hand. But, yeah, but afterwards, yeah, I don't know. Were they, were they converted or what? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a great great question. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Uh, 10 to 19. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in, coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who can, who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way, and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, he has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Good, and we'll stop right there. Okay. Um, so, there's this Christian in Damascus named Ananias, and, uh, you know, did you notice the similarities between kind of uh, what happens with Ananias and what happened with Saul? Both of them received a vision, both of them were called by name in the vision, and both of them were told to get up and go somewhere. In this case, where's Ananias supposed to go? Saul. Yes! Who's in the city of Damascus? Where is he at? He's in Judas's house on Straight Street. Isn't that appropriately named? Because what happens to Saul on the street called Straight? He's straightened out. That's exactly right. And uh, you know, you have some thoughts in. Uh, in the book about that. For example, look at 13.10. You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? What a place for Saul to learn the straight ways of the Lord, the street called straight. The Lord does so many things that are just amazing, you know, in that. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything really to be made of this, but I find it fascinating the names of the individuals involved here. What's fascinating about that? Both of you had sinned and were killed. Yeah. Judas killed himself, Ananias was killed who, in the past chapter. Who were the two earlier in the book that had fallen away from the Lord and died? Judas and Ananias. And now you have a Judas and an Ananias here. You know, whatever we want to think about that. I don't know anything about Judas. You know, I don't know if he was, um, you know, a believer. If he was, that would be particularly interesting. Uh, but I don't know that that's the case. Uh, but at any rate, that's uh, that's a curiosity to me. Um, so, 
what's Ananias' immediate response to this? Uh, wait. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I've heard what I've heard. Uh, you got the wrong guy. Both ends. <laughs> this was a man Ananias was hoping not to see in Damascus while he was there. You know, because he knew about him. I mean, this guy's reputation's gotten around. He says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints of Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Isn't that a perfectly understandable reaction on Ananias' part? You know, I mean, I would have been pretty hesitant. And what does the Lord say? Go. <laughs> you know, when the Lord says go, go. You know, he says, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. He's got a mission. You know, he's got a job to do. I've chosen him. And I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my sake. He's he's chosen for the mission. He's also going to suffer a lot. Um, you know, he Saul's mission had been to to bind those that uh, verse 14 who call on your name, but verse 16 actually he's going to suffer for the Lord's name. That's what's going to happen. And uh, so. God tells Ananias, I got a job for him, he's going to serve, he's going to even suffer for me, now go, and through you, he's to regain his sight. So Ananias goes, enters the house, lays his hands on Saul and says, Brother Saul, you know, the Lord sent me to give you your sight so you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now people often misunderstand the brother Saul. You know... Was Saul, when Ananias said that, a Christian brother? No. Because he hadn't been baptized yet. But we've been using that term brother all along in the book of Acts, not to mean Christian brother necessarily, but to mean what? Jewish brother. And I, I pointed those out at the time, but passages like 2.29 and 3.17 use brethren in that very same sense. So, he wasn't a Christian brother, but he's a Jewish brother. And when Ananias lays his hands on him, scales fall from his eyes or something like that, he regains his sight, he gets up, and he is baptized, he is converted to the Lord, and, you know, goes on about his way. So we get the start of just the most amazing transformation in a man like Saul that you could imagine. Comments and questions? I think it's kind of, I guess, funny when I am 13 or 14, you know, it's like, Ananias is almost like questioning God, you know what I mean? He's like, are you sure you want me, you know, and it's like, I know, I, I don't know, I mean, I guess I've done that too before, and I, you know, I hear people do, and it's just funny, when we question God, it's like we're trying to say that we're smarter than him, you know, as if, as if we know more than he does, you know, and it's, it makes no sense to question what he says to do, it's just, can, I don't know if it's just a nature or what. But. Well, can God ask us to do things that are very difficult, that are very dangerous, that seem very illogical. Yeah. Say. We're going to ask that of Paul a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but, when I think of, I was reading this the other day, studying through, trying to catch up with us since I've been here a while, I read way past, but, um, <laughs> in 15 and 16, 
you didn't ask, you just questioned the Lord. That he should even go and baptize him. And here God is saying he's going to be one of my chosen servants. You know, so you kind of think of this as an Ananias gone. I'll take that as a yes. Um, but, but he said go, so. Well, sure. Um, but, but I just got to think about those verses. And I wonder how many of us would want those those things said about us. The chosen vessel part, yeah. Back around seven things for his name. Uh, that's getting a little touchy. Um, here's the Lord giving Paul, or Saul at this point, not even a Christian yet, has been killing his people. One of the greatest compliments you can give anyone in this world, that he was a chosen vessel and that he was going to glorify his Lord. And I think as Christians, we are so hesitant. We would be so hesitant for the Lord to say that about us. Or even to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Is that the job we want? Now, remarkably, 15 and 16, you can see so much how Luke wrote this. I mean, he includes things with a purpose. Really, 15 and 16 is basically the summary, almost the uh, mission statement for chapters 13 to 28. Isn't that exactly what chapters 13 to 28 tell us? (laughs) It's exactly what you've got. So this just is kind of forecasting predicting, if you want to say that, the career Saul will have. And for me, it shows that someone only with a zealous heart is Paul. Even, even in what he was doing before, could have taken on this mission and done as well as he did. It's a daunting task, Chris. Yeah, he ends up on the other side of that, binding those that call upon his name. You're exactly right. He ends up bound for... (laughs) Absolutely. He gets what he was dishing out. You know, wow. You know, here's a guy who's been on both sides. When I used to uh, spend a lot of time in prison uh, visiting, um, one of the guys I was really close to was a former prison guard. Not, thankfully, in that same institution, in the same system. It was very interesting. It was interesting to see it from a guy's perspective who's been guard and now is inmate. And, uh, uh, he had lots of insights that were a little different than other people would have because he kind of knew both sides of the fence. Can you imagine what it would be like for Saul now being persecuted in the same way that he was persecuting? I don't know if I could have gone through that without thinking every time about what I had done to someone else. Well, I know. Yeah. Other comments and questions through uh, 19. He had his priorities set up um, so that the first thing that was important was to be baptized, to become a Christian, to take care of that. And then he had food. He'd been without food and drink for three days, and he thought it was more important to be immersed in a pool of water somewhere instead of having some food now that you know how this is all going to turn out. You know. Yeah, now that you can see it if you want to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, how do we know that he didn't eat for three days? It says, it says so. Verse 9. Verse 9. Oh, alright. We read it, but I just didn't. Okay. I think it's only about interesting too. 
and I was, I was thinking about this with, in chapter 8 with the eunuch and also here, but there's no waiting. There's no, not, make sure you understand this. It's, you get it, you go. You know, like a lot of times whenever, you know, whenever I was talking about the mad class, I was like, watch this thing about it for a little while. There wasn't anything about it. You, you did it. You felt like doing it, you did it. Because it was the right thing to do. Uh, there was no hesitation. From here on out, he's to follow the orders of the Lord. And he does. There was obviously some, he either knew or Ananias, it doesn't say, talked to him more about what he needed to do. But he probably heard a lot of it already too. <laughs> he may have. Chapter 22, Ananias will actually talk to him about baptism. And uh, one other thing, it does say <coughs> Jesus appeared to you in verse 17. Yeah, good point. Thank you. I think it's interesting that God uses Ananias to go talk to him when he could have talked to him himself. That's <laughs> how um, so he chooses to use people to accomplish his purposes. As far as I can see, that's consistent. That the Lord never does evangelize someone directly. It was always through another human being. Spirit told Philip to go to the road to join himself to the chariot you know and the vision tells Saul to go to Damascus and tells Ananias to go find him you know and and there'll be a number of things that'll be done in chapter 10 to get Peter and Cornelius together but when it comes down to preaching the message every time it's a human being who actually preaches the gospel Other comments? That's quite a responsibility. You're right. All right, 20 to 25, actually the end of 19. This is it's a bad verse division here. <laughs> so uh, the end of 19 through 25. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So, in Damascus, what does he start doing? Proclaiming Jesus. That's interesting. <laughs> He's on the opposite side promoting what he was trying to destroy. And what was the reaction of the people who heard him? What is going on here? This was, this was the guy who was supposed to be against this, and now he's doing this? It's amazing. And in the places where he was going to go do it, he had got the letters from the synagogues, and he's in the synagogues teaching what he was going to abolish. So, you just couldn't have any more total about face. It's amazing. You know, <laughs> wonder what some of those people in the synagogues thought. You know, what? You know, he's not supposed to be doing this. You know, he completely changed sides. And uh, he kept increasing in strength, it says in 22, confounding the Jews 
who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He becomes a very powerful and effective preacher. Now, think about this thought. Isn't what Saul does a sign of true conversion to Christ? If you're converted to Christ, don't you immediately want to tell other people about the Lord as well? That's, that's the right thing to do. I realize he's got a special mission. But in this sense, I think he's a pattern for all of us. That when we turn to the Lord, we want other people to come to glorify the Lord as well. And uh, it turns out <laughs> that what happens in his relationship with the Jews... Yeah. And what do they do? Yes, they plot to do away with him. He finds out about it. They were watching the gates so he couldn't leave Damascus. So what happened? His fellow brethren helped him out. How? Lowering down to the wall. Yeah. They were able to, to lower him over the wall, not at a gate, in a basket. I guess they had ropes or whatever, and lowered him down. Isn't that interesting? You know, Saul entered Damascus blind and left in a basket. <laughs> <laughs> the basket case, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I hadn't really thought about it that way. But. I think it was not. It's kind of, uh, I don't know, I can even see it sort of being embarrassing. You know, I mean, notice also, we've made this point before, I think, but the Christians did not just wait to be martyred. You know, Saul knew they were plotting to kill him. He left. Now, he certainly will show later he's no coward. He's willing to preach boldly anywhere. But he's not just trying to get killed. And uh, they, they let him leave and, and uh, the, the disciples do. And so he flees from Damascus. Comments and questions through 25. Every time I read this, I... It just amazes me, but you know, I almost imagine. Of course, the Jews would have known that he was coming. So this guy walks into their synagogue, and they say, "Oh, good, you're here." Now there's a guy. That, oh, I know. But have you heard about this Jesus guy? And here's this guy. They're coming, hoping to have kill people. They're having to try and kill. <laughs> so here he is, proving the Lord, and doing a good job of it. And you think, well, how? He he's just been converted. Well, he's known the scriptures. If you're crying out loud, he's been studying these things forever. And he already has applied what he's learned to what he already knows. And he sees and makes a connection to the Old Testament. And undoubtedly has the help of the sure. Spirit as well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a remarkable thing. Other thoughts? You know more about, do you know more about this... Uh, in verse 25, when it says they lowered him through the wall in the large basket, like, I've heard that they, uh, someone was explaining this to me back in the day they were walking somewhere. I guess, like, people would lower, like, they'd have a basket, like a window, that's why, well, my verse says, like, through, through a wall, and, uh, I guess that through the windows, they would lower 
I don't know, foods and whatnot down through, so they never go all the way downstairs. I guess it was like a quick way of getting things downstairs to people. I don't know. Do you know anything about that? I don't know anything so, about that. I guess these basket things were already like, it was like a common, I don't know, oh, let's put you in the basket. I don't know if that's true or not. I have no I, idea. I, I crush told me something like that one time. That would be exceeded the maximum load limit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. Yeah. That's what I'm wondering. Probably had a big red sticker on yeah. it. Do not exceed. I'm thinking, I'm thinking the story got mixed up somewhere. It's been a long time since so I haven't told it to. It yeah. doesn't really tell us. So, uh, yeah. There is one other reference to this event. It doesn't tell us that. The reference is in 2 Corinthians 11.32. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. Okay. Basically says the same thing, but that is right. another mention of that. Those are the only two mentions I know about. Uh, so that's all really I know about this. But I mean, definitely, he was in great danger. I mean, you know, this is his way of getting out. Okay. Well, I didn't know that was in Sankara. Yeah, I'm glad you're showing up. Okay, cool. Anything else through 25? He was probably expecting to bring people out, like, in not exactly baskets, but bring them out to go back to Jerusalem bound. And he comes out in a basket, kind of condensed in a basket, bound himself. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's quite a quite a reversal of expectations. Good point. Other thoughts? Makes me think of James again. You, can you tell I've been studying James? <laughs> um, about, you know, come you who say, this time we're going to go to the city and we're going to make a profit and we're going to come back and, you know, be careful about the plans that you make. <laughs> you don't expect them to always go the way you do. It doesn't always work that way, does it? I'd say that was a successful journey, just not the way he did it. Mm -hmm. Are you right? The, the Jews seem to like to plot to put people to death, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> I have a thing for that, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> they weren't very good at it either. <laughs> 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 they didn't do very well. It didn't, they didn't it seem to make it all the time. But, uh, you didn't find a new town. New hobby. <laughs> So what should we say? The subtitle of Acts is the uh, Book of Foiled Plots. <laughs> How many times do I have to kill you? <laughs> All right, 26 to 30. <clears throat> and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, and, he, and did not believe that he was a disciple. The Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had made, how he had preached all the way to Damascus in the name of Jesus. <coughs> so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out, sent him out to Tarsus. Well, he goes to Jerusalem, wanting, of course. To associate with his brethren, and what's their attitude? Yeah. Can you imagine what they could have been thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if they didn't think this was some sort of a stratagem to infiltrate, find out who they are, and then kill them. Like what happens sometimes? You know, so that would be a, a 
you know, scary thing. Maybe he's just faking this. Who stands up for him and vouches for him? The son of encouragement. He lives up to his billing. He befriends him and he takes him to the apostles and describes to them the change that took place in him and why. And that seems to be sufficient. Then they are willing to associate with him. Notice that Barnabas said he had seen the Lord on the road. That goes back to an earlier question. And uh, he, what does he do in Jerusalem? Something he did in Damascus. Speaks out boldly for the Lord. He becomes as outspoken and zealous promoter of the cause as he had tried to destroy the cause earlier. And uh, so what do the Jews do? Same thing again. They want to put him to death. They try to kill him, so what do the brethren do? <coughs> Which Tarsus was what for Saul? Yeah, that was his hometown, so they're sending him back up to where he'd started from. Now, think about this. Um, You know, you've got him talking and arguing in 29 with the Hellenistic Jews. Now, back in chapter 6, it was the Hellenistic Jews that were against Stephen. Um, So... uh, uh, There's some verse... And, of course, verse 9, I guess, of of chapter 6... Uh, really shows that. These are not the Jews from Palestine. These are the Jews from from outlying areas. And uh, so it's that same group that Paul is arguing with and that are trying to kill him. Now think about what happens to him in verse 30. When Paul had left Jerusalem the last time, he had left in order to do what? To try to arrest who? Who had? Well, who had fled? Now he leaves Jerusalem as a fleeing Christian. He, he he leaves Jerusalem in Acts nine to try to round up the fugitives, and now he is a fugitive fleeing from Jerusalem. So you see, it's come full circle in this chapter. Yes, yes. Now he is promoting the very thing that Stephen had done. I can't even imagine what that would have done to him. Yeah. Questions and comments? Beginning of verse 27, uh, this version says that Barnabas took hold of him. And so you've got that again, that binding everyone, laying your hands on him, and, and that whole something's being happening to Paul, and that whole concept there being taken hold of. So that's what he wanted to do, and he ends up being in the passive case instead of the active. Other comments or questions? When did when did he spend his did he spend a couple of years somewhere in the middle of this? In in Galatians one you have that question. 
suggested. In Galatians 1, uh, it talks about in uh, verse uh, 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. So it's three years later, and he's been in Arabia as well as Damascus. Now, Arabia might be areas just south of Damascus. The Arabian territory seemed to come up to kind of border the Damascus area. So that doesn't necessarily mean he went clear all the way down to the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula. Who knows? All right, anything else? All right, then I think we'll stop here, and uh, we'll be ready for 9.31. That will be a while. Uh, I believe, if I am not mistaken, that should be the first Thursday in December. I will leave next Thursday to go to Brazil. Four weeks from today, I should be coming back from Brazil. The next Thursday is Thanksgiving Day, so the first Thursday of December, we'll plan on... uh, Picking up in 931.